All right, all right, good. You guys don't seem like it. You're pretty quiet. <laughs> A few heads shucks, all right. All right, well, this morning we're going to be looking at uh, Luke chapter 10. And uh, we're, we're sort of taking a break. I'm sure Nick could mention we're taking a break from Hebrews for a few weeks, and, and uh, we're jumping into a few other texts. And so we're going to be looking this morning at the first 12 verses of Luke chapter 10. And I've just entitled the, the message, Go Therefore, which you'll probably uh, think of maybe the Great Commission, Go Therefore, uh, and, and Make Disciples of All Nations, Baptizing Them in the Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Teaching Them Everything That I've Commanded You, and Lo, I'll Be With You Always to the End of the Age. And so... Uh, so that's where the go, therefore, comes from. Uh, but we're going to see why that applies to our passage today, I think, pretty clearly as well. And we see that uh, just a, the tagline is that, uh, that as children of God, as disciples of Jesus, uh, we are formed and, and called to go out into the world and to bear witness, to, to show others around who God is. Our lives are meant to bear witness to the very reality of God, to the reality of his kingdom, and to the reality of the king. And so that's what we're going to see in our passage today. So uh, we stand here at the reading of God's word. So would you stand with me as we look at, uh, read through Luke chapter 10? We do that because this is not my words, but these are God's words, fully inspired by him. And so we stand just as a way of honoring uh, God's word. Hear the word of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way, and behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, then your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick and say to them that the kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of, of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. But nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your incredible word. And I pray, Lord, today that this would be more than words on paper, but God, these would be your very breathed out words to us today, that you have chosen to reveal yourself, to make yourself known, and to reveal your will for us, your disciples. And you've chosen to do that most directly through your word. And so, Lord, may these words come off of these pages and, and move and change and transform our hearts that we would be more and more like your son Jesus. And we ask this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, just before the 4th of July, the week before, um, my, uh, my brother-in-law has, my brother-in-law called me and asked me if I could come and run his combine for him during harvest. His uh, his hired man came down with cancer, and so when the harvest is, is ripe, uh, you, you need to harvest, and uh, it's hard in small town western Kansas to find a combine operator during harvest, and so he asked if I would come. It's a skill that's rusty, but it's still, I still possess, and so I, uh, so I said, sure, I, I actually would love to. I was totally excited. I love running the combine. You can take the farmer, they say, off of the farm, but you can't take the farm out of the farmer. Uh, I grew up on the farm, and uh, I've run the combine on and off for farmers over the years as a pastor even. It was just part of a, a joy for me is harvest. And so I got to go back, and you can see up there, this is me a few weeks ago uh, helping harvest. And, uh, but I was sitting on the combine, and I was thinking about this passage because I knew I was supposed to preach. And uh, it's amazing how Jesus uses this idea of the harvest um, to, 
to help us picture the reality of the, of the mission that he has us on in this world, to gather a people, to, to harvest, to literally bring in this ripe harvest, to gather a people to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. As I'm, as I'm there, I, I'll just tell you a little bit of, of the fun part. So by the way, uh, I don't miss being a farmer. I miss that. It's the other 355 days of the year that I don't miss, all right? So, but I really miss running the combine. They're a little high, more high-tech nowadays and about three-quarters of a million dollars. So, um, but, but here's the interesting thing. Um, I, what we, I got there at midnight. I flew in to Garden City, Kansas. I got there at midnight. Uh, we were up the next morning by about 5.30 or 6 o'clock. And my, my brother-in-law's kids are all doing the chores they're taking care of the, the cattle, the horses. They got pigs for 4-H, and they got steers. And they're, they're watering and feeding them and working with them all before 7 a.m. Because And then, and then my brother-in-law says, uh, I want you to take this truck to town. It has the, the fuel tank on the trailer, right? The trailer, the fuel on it. So I want you to go into co-op. You want to fill this tank up and then get back here as soon as you can. And there was like this sense of urgency to it, right? Because, the, because the, there's something at stake at Harvest, Harvest is a serious time. Like, you never find in western Kansas, you never find apathy during harvest. Farmers aren't sitting around at the coffee shop you know, like they might be during the wintertime. They're not sitting at the coffee shop, you know, chilling out for an hour or two, talking to people, right? And my brother-in-law, if I would have ran into town to co-op, which I ran into all kinds of people that I've known from my childhood, if I would have stopped long enough to, like, chill out with them, be like, hey, man, it's been a long time, let's catch up, and two hours later I would have showed up at the field... Um, that would have not been cool, right? Because, because there's, there's a ripe harvest, right? Jesus even says it here. He says the harvest is plentiful, right? The laborers are few. And, and so there's, a, there's an urgency to the harvest because there's things at stake. Two days from there, uh, we were seeing rain clouds in the forecast, right? And when rain clouds come during that time of year in western Kansas, it comes with hail, Right? And, and it delays the harvest or destroys the harvest. And so we are on a clock. Like, there's serious things at stake. There are hundreds of thousands of dollars laying, sitting out there in these fields that are these, my, my brother-in-law's livelihood. And so there's an urgency. And so we worked hard to get onto the combine, too. At the moment it was ready to cut, we were in the combine and we were going, right? You have to wait for the dew to lift off of the stalks because the combine won't thresh. Uh, so you, right as soon as that sun burns off the dew, man, you're going, right? You, and, and we're harvesting. We would go in as long as we could. We would go clear into the night until it was, the dew came again and stopped us. And we would do that day and night. And so we did that. And ironically, uh, two days after, two full days of probably like 16, 18-hour days, uh, the rain came. Seven and a half inches of rain came, which is terrible. Uh, they never have seven and a half inches of rain in western Kansas at one time. It came in a few hours, flooded everything out. Uh, we were kayaking down the ditch. Uh, it was crazy. Uh, and, and then two days after that, another inch and a half came and came hail. And, uh, but by God's grace, we got, they had 1,000 acres, we got 520 cut. And it was the best acres. We got the best part of the crop out of the fields, right? But as I'm sitting here thinking about this, like, the urgency of the harvest. And I was thinking about the joy. I, I was in, I loved every second of it. I was, I was sending messages to people back here, like videos as I'm driving the combine. I'm like, I was absolutely in my element. I love it. I, I love it, love it. I, I miss it already. I love it, but I don't want to deal with the other 355 days of the year. And so I really enjoyed it. But I was thinking about that in my own heart. It's amazing how exciting farmers get about the, about the wheat harvest and how intense it is, and how dedicated they are to work day and night to get that harvest out of the field because it's a valuable crop to them. And I thought, how lackadaisical and apathetic I am at times about, about the real harvest, the very mission that God has us on as Christians, the very reason why he is forming you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, is so that you and I would be engaged in the harvest, the great harvest, of, of helping people know who God is, that they would see him, that they would know him, that they would trust in him, that they would have eternal life. Like, I, I was convicted as I'm driving this combine, just loving every second of it, I'm thinking to myself, why am I not as excited every day that this is what God wants me to live for and to live like, right? This is it. 
And so I'm, I was thinking about all this and this passage and this, this text kept coming to my mind that, that the harvest is plentiful and it's, and it's serious, right? There's a seri- there are lots of things at stake. Far more is at stake than hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of grain. Far more serious things are at stake in what God is doing in this world. It's a far bigger deal and a far bigger reality, right? And I felt convicted, and so I come to this passage where he's saying, the harvest is plentiful, and it's still plentiful today. Do you believe that? The harvest is plentiful. In John, he says that it's wide unto harvest, like it's, it's ripe, it's ready, but there are few laborers, just like my brother-in-law had to call me to find somebody who could run a combine and go halfway across the country. The, the laborers are few, and so we come to this passage in which Jesus is teaching his disciples the importance of the harvest. In fact, he teaches them right from the beginning of their, their faith, right from the beginning, he teaches them that normal Christian life as a disciple is a life that is on mission. Normal Christian life is a life that is actively bearing witness in every single thing that we do or say to the reality of who God is. That's the normal Christian life. It's always been about evangelism. It's always about declaring the glory of God and showing people the glory of God around us. That's normal Christian life. I found it interesting as I was thinking about this sitting on the combine. I thought to myself, you don't see very many farmers waxing their combine in the middle of harvest. Right? They're not sitting around washing it off, keeping it shiny and looking good. They're not, they're not sitting around going, hey, now's a good time to replace those bearings. You know, now's a good time to take care. No, no, you don't see anybody making the, the machine look really nice. You see people getting in it and going at it, using it in the harvest, doing the work, right? And I, I thought about that like in terms of Jesus' church across this world. How often we spend time polishing up the church. We wanted everything to look just right. We, we're, we're constantly busy putting everything in order. And I wonder if we're that busy or intent about actually doing the work of the harvest, right? About actually getting out there and bearing witness to the reality of who our God is. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. In verse 1 of chapter 10, he begins, he simply says, after this. And so I think it's important for us to see some context here. Uh, after what? Well, he just, he just talked to them about the cost of discipleship. The fact that there's a cost. Jesus, I love Jesus', uh, his recruitment is not like what we would do today, right? He's honest, right? He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't say that, hey, everything's going to be hunky-dory. It's all going to be perfect. If you just follow me, life is going to be nice and shiny and polished and perfect. No, he, he's honest with them and upfront with them. There's a cost to following me. There's, there's, you're going to have skin in the game, sometimes literally skin in the game. There's a serious cost to, to following Christ. But if, you, if you're a financial person here, you know that we weigh these things out, right? We go, what's the cost-benefit ratio, right? We do this all the time. You're doing this. Your, your banker's at least doing this on you all the time, right? He's saying, he's saying, look at the cost of something, and we look at what are the benefits of that cost. And when you weigh out the cost benefits of following Jesus versus the dangers of following Jesus, there's no, it, it just doesn't even, it's worth every ounce of the cost. Every single bit, every bit of the, the hardship and the difficulties of following Christ. In fact, Paul even says it this way. He says, he says the, the suffering that we face now, he says, it's not worth comparing to the future glory glory that's going to be revealed. In other words, there's going to come a day in which the suffering and the hardships you feel right now, is a, it'll be as if they never existed. It'll give way to something that's so much greater and so much more worth it, right? And so, and so he's telling them the cost of following Christ, but I think that the, after this is not just referring to that immediate context. It's probably going back even to the last few chapters because in chapter beginning of this chapter, he's already sent out the twelve. And, and he's, he's given them authority to, over demons and given them authority to heal the sick. And they went out and they came back successful. It's amazing when we go out and do exactly what Jesus tells us to do. It's amazing that it succeeds, right? <laughs> that was supposed to be funny. <laughs> but Jesus has not only told them what to go do. Before that even, if you go back to chapter 8 and previous chapters, he's demonstrating to them what to do. He's, he's been teaching them. 
And he's been walking along the way in life as they're going from town to town. He's been showing them in his own life and through his own ministry and through his own words. He's been showing them and demonstrating to them what life in the kingdom of God is like. What it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And so he's showing them these things. He's teaching them about these things. And then he says to the 12 and now to the 72, now you go do it. Right? So it's the... The thing where he demonstrates it, does it with you, and then he sends them out and says, okay, now it's your turn. Go. Go to these cities. And so, so Jesus says, he sa- or says in, in Luke, he says, after this, after all these things that have been leading up to this moment, he says, he appointed 72 others. In other words, it wasn't just the 12. There were other followers of Christ at this point. There were others who were genuinely following Jesus, and he commissions them, and he sends them out. And he's going to give them some instructions. By the way, before I get to that, I want you just to think about this. These are not seasoned, veteran, trained Christians. There are no Bible degrees in this group. In fact, if you go to Acts chapter 4, when John, Peter and John are before the authorities, what did, what did, they, what did the authorities say about them? They said these, they took note that these men were unschooled, ordinary men but they had been with Jesus. I think it's important for us, especially in our world of education, that we, that we take note of the fact that these are very, this, this whole movement of the kingdom of God here that's happening is very new, right? These are the first followers of Christ and they haven't been following very long and, the, and Jesus immediately is sending them out on mission. They have no, no bachelor's degrees, no master's of divinity, no doctorates of ministry, none of that stuff. They have no theological education other than some days of walking with Jesus and seeing him live life and do life and teach them, and now they're supposed to go do it. I think that says something to us, doesn't it? That every single person who is a Christian is a person who is sent on mission. Every one of us is called to go make disciples. It is not for the few. It's not for those of us who have degrees. In fact, sometimes our degrees can get in the way of making disciples. We can be so smart that we can actually not be be very dependent upon the Spirit of God to work through the simple and powerful message of the gospel truth. These believers didn't even have a Bible. They didn't even have an Old Testament Bible, by the way. They had it, but it was read to them in the synagogue. They didn't own a Bible. They were equipped with what Jesus had taught them and what he had done in them, right? And they went out, and he sent them out without any hesitation whatsoever. And so every one of us are to be in the game. God intends for his church to be a gathered people, but to be a sent people. When we leave here today... We are being sent out as light into a dark world to bear witness to the reality of who God is. Amen, indeed. So, what are his instructions? I want you to know, in Scripture, there are, there are uh, cultural issues, right? So, some of the things we're going to talk about today, and we're not going to get into the depths of this, but some of these things are cultural in the sense of there's very different culture that the gospel is going out in this moment, in, the, in this text, and so we have to wrestle with, what does this look like for us in our culture, in our context, right? We have to wrestle with that. But first thing he does, he says he sent them out two by two into every town and place where he himself was going to go. The Christian faith, in other words, Jesus is giving them instructions, go out, but don't go out alone. The Christian faith is not intended, your life is not intended to be lived alone. You are not to, not to serve God in isolation uh, I, many, many people say, well, I don't, really need to, I don't really need to go to church to be a Christian. And I go, well, you're right. But it's pretty hard to be a growing, thriving Christian without being a part of the body of Christ, right? It's pretty difficult. In fact, it's impossible to do that because Jesus says it is. <laughs> you are saved into a body and you need, we need each other, right? And so he says here that they were, they were to go out two by two, not alone, but together in groups of twos. They were to go out into the highways and byways, into the city streets and go proclaim the kingdom of God is near. And so they were sent. I think that's incredibly important for us to be reminded. Let me just ask you this one. Do you have people in your life that you are close enough to that they know the details of your life, that they care about your faith? That they would know if you're getting off track, they would know it. And they would call you on it. 
We need that as Christians. We need each other. Because the places that we are going to share the gospel are dark and corrupt places at times. Difficult places. The places where you work around the watering hole at your workplace. I don't think they call it that, but you know, it sounds cool anyway. I've been in Kansas, so, you know. And so the, the, when you're hanging out in the break room, right, um, the, the, the conversations and the things that come up and the, the, the moments during lunch at the construction site, like there's some pretty dark things, right, that go on and are talked about. And you and I need each other. We need other people in our lives to be praying for us, encouraging us, helping us so that we will not be led astray, so that we will be able to impact the darkness and not the other way around, right? And so he sends them out two by two. There's a lot of principles in Scripture we could go for that, but we're just going to leave it at that, two by two. I think it's pretty clear. Secondly, verse, verse 2, and he said to them, our verse, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. But, but listen to this. They, he intends for them to have a prayerful dependence upon him. I love these words. Listen to these words in verse 2. Therefore, so in light of the fact that the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few, how, what, is, what are we supposed to do with that? Are we supposed to come up with a really good uh, recruiting strategy? Right? Are we supposed to like, you know, figure out some really cool ways to get more workers? No, the first thing we're supposed to do, he says, therefore, in light of the fact that there's not many workers, but there's a lot of harvest, he says, therefore, pray earnestly. Pray earnestly. Like in English, that's hard to like, I want to like jump up on the, on the podium here, like pray earnestly, like this is the sense here. Like it's an intensity. Pray intensely. Why? Because the harvest is plentiful, right? Kind of like the farmers in western Kansas. They are, they are moving fast, man. They're not hanging out at the coffee shop. They are earnest. They're focused. They, they got stuff going on. Pray earnestly, intently, because there are things at stake. Serious things, eternal things at stake. And he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Jesus is Lord of the harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. Pray for God to do that. Do you pray for that? Pray for God to raise up and send many more laborers. And where are we sending them to? We oftentimes think we're sending them overseas somewhere, right? Which we are. We are in all kinds of countries and we should be because the gospel is intended to go to the ends of the earth. But the majority of you sitting right here are going to leave this place and you're going to go to your homes you're going to go to the grocery store, to the gas station, to your favorite restaurant. You're going to go hang out with your family, some of which may not know Jesus. You're going to go to work tomorrow. It's in those places that you're being sent out to. And we need to pray for God to raise up more workers to be sent out into this community, into this state, into this nation, and into the world. And notice this. This is my favorite part of this verse. Send out laborers into whose harvest? His harvest, it says. I don't think that's a mistake. Send out laborers into his harvest. The harvest is God's. He's the one. It's his mission. We are simply called to join him in what he is doing. And when you and I join God in what God is doing, incredible things will happen. God will do his work, and we will get to be a part of it. It's his deal. This should give us incredible confidence, right? We should have incredible to know that this is his deal. We didn't make this up. We're not trying to create opportunities for mission and ministry and not creating opportunities to share the gospel. No, we're going to work. We're waking up in the morning. We're going and getting gas, and we're smiling to the lady who's checking us out or to the guy who's helping us find this thing at the grocery store or whatever. We, we are simply going about life. In fact, he even says here in a moment, he says, go your way. <laughs> go your way. Whatever that is, go your way. And as you're going, which is the sense of the Great Commission, right? As you're going. It's not just go, therefore. It's as you're going, make disciples. In other words, as you're living life, the normal stuff. It's his harvest. Third, verse 3. He says to them, Jesus says to them, Go your way, there it is, and behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. I always thought this had to do with persecution and suffering and difficulty, but I'm not so sure. I think he's actually talking about the fact that we are to go out as, with a lamb-like demeanor. 
He's not seeing this as a negative thing. He's just simply stating it as a fact. I'm sending you out. I'm actually sending you, and this is the, the manner in which I'm sending you. I'm sending you out as a lamb in the midst of wolves. It is dangerous. Wolves and lambs don't quite get along if you weren't sure about that, right? So it is dangerous. There is suffering. There is difficulties. It's dangerous out there. But notice, notice he's saying, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst. I'm not sending you out as conquerors. I'm not sending you out in a sense of a, a military sense where you're going to go out and you're going to take some territory and you're going to kick some tail for, the, for Jesus, right? That's not what he's saying. I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. I think that says something about the demeanor that we are to have when we go out. We're not going out as conquerors. Jesus is the conquering king. We are going out humbly, gently. You ever, you ever been around lambs? I was... I was watching my nephews and nieces feed the lambs uh, on the farm here when I was back there, and they're pretty gentle, right? The rams, not so much. But the lambs, we used to run across the pen really fast and see if we could beat the ram across there. But the, that's a whole other story, <laughs> my brother and I. So lots of dares as a kid. But, uh, but, but lambs are just these gentle animals, fluffy, cute, cuddly, right? Um, there's a gentleness to them. There's also a vulnerableness to them. They're vulnerable. Like the wolves kill the lambs and eat them. And so we're to go out. We're not supposed to go out in some other way. We're supposed to go out like a lamb. Gentle, humble, lowly, cuddly. uh, But armed with the reality of the gospel. Right? We're not supposed to go out as conquerors. I think sometimes we think that. And we'll get into why that might be interesting to think about here in a minute. But he says we're supposed to have a lamb-like demeanor, realizing that we are amongst wolves. It is dangerous out there. Number four, this one can be confusing. He says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. There you go. You know, normally we spend years, like, uh, raising money, right, to go out on mission. And here, Jesus is saying, I'm going to send you out to these towns ahead of me. Take zero, not even sandals on your feet. What's that about, right? No knapsack, no money, no sandals, and don't talk to anyone as you're going. That seems strange, right? Now, there are some cultural pieces to this. What he's saying is, is don't get distracted. Don't be distracted. Why would money be distracting? <laughs> Oftentimes, uh, well, in fact, I'll give you an example. That we, we did a lot of res- money or a lot of ministry on the reservation years ago, and the leader of this ministry that we were a part of, which is just a life-changing experience for our family, the, the leader of this, he would say to us when we go into Track Thirty Three, which is a really, really crazy, rough, well-known among natives uh, uh, housing development in Minnesota, among the Chippewa Indians, and and this. This tract of housing was very tough, and we spent like 10 years going to this tract of housing. God did some incredible things. But he would always say to us, do not take anything with you. We couldn't take money. We couldn't even offer, like we couldn't take clothing with us to feed the, to, to clothe the children. Not because we didn't do any of that. But he wanted it to be clear that when we came, we simply came in the name of Jesus. Right? We simply came with this beautiful message of the gospel. And that's our introduction. Hey, my name is Chris. And I'm here, you know, with this such and such church. And I just want you to know that God loves you. Is there any way that I can pray for you? And that's all I got. I got nothing else on me. I got nothing like, I need 20 bucks. I don't have that. Like Peter said, right? Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus, right? Sometimes all of our stuff is a distraction to us. And so he says, take no money. Take no knapsack. Like, because you're going to be moving and you're going to have to be dependent. This is interesting. You're going to have to be dependent upon the people that you're going to minister to. You know one of the great ways to share the gospel with somebody is to put yourself in their debt. We don't know what to do with that in our culture, right? It's very difficult. Like We don't think of it that way. We always are the ones who provide for people and take care of people. And yet some of the best ways to share the gospel is to put yourself in your neighbor's debt. You're going to have to depend upon them for things. And so... He says to them, don't talk to anyone on the road. I know that one's a strange one, right? <laughs> Aren't we supposed to be nice? <laughs> you know, you're imagining like going down, like I'm not talking to any of these people. You know, I'm just going like, aren't they the mission? <laughs> like, you know, like 
what's going on here, Jesus? I'm not sure I understand this. But in their culture, in their culture, when they're traveling from town to town, if you stop and meet somebody on the road, you had to go through these formal introductions and it would take forever. It was a part of their culture. And so, there, so it would take a long time to go through all these formal introductions. And you could literally be like me, distracted at the coffee shop, at the, at the co-op, you know, while I'm getting fuel for my brother-in-law. I could be sitting there going, hey, you know, talking to my neighbor, to somebody I hadn't seen in 25 years. You know, I could be sitting there. And, and the harvest, by the way, is still is ready. And I'm over here having coffee, right? And so Jesus is saying, do not be distracted. Don't, don't get into all these kinds of things. You're on a mission. You have a purpose. Go to the city and enter someone's house, which is going to say next. Don't be distracted. Now, I just want to pause there for a minute. I, I think we can look at our culture and even our own lives and, and point to tons of things that we would say is a distraction in our lives. We are pretty much pretty well off here, right? Even the poorest person in this room is far more well off than, the, than the, some of the richest people in many countries. I don't know if you know, you ever done the little uh, income index to find out where you rank in the world? I'm always like, are you kidding me? Like, you know, it's crazy, right? So we, we, we have a lot of things that we could point to in our lives and say they're a distraction. But I want to just, I, we would say things like sports, distraction, Xbox, distraction, TV shows, distraction, uh, fancy cars, fancy this, nice house, lots of yard. What, all these, we could say all those things are distraction, but let me, let me propose a different way of looking at it. I don't think any of those things are distraction in and of themselves. None of them. Not your Xbox. For you kids, that's not the distraction. No. Uh, not your, not your, your cars and gadgets and uh, not, not sports. You know, many of you in the room here love sports. I know that because we argue about that all the time. Right? Um, none of that stuff in and of itself is a distraction. We're the distraction of that stuff. Can you watch sports to the glory of God? You bet you can. In fact, can you play, let me, let me test out some of the, uh, I say older, you know, my age and older. Uh, can, you, can you play Xbox to the glory of God? Is Xbox a distraction from the gospel of Jesus Christ? I have a pastor in our region who is a serious gamer. I mean serious, like he's good. He could get paid if he wanted to, like one of those kind of guys. And some of you who are gamers, you know what I'm talking about, right? They get on the internet, they get paid to play and let people watch them, right? It's lucrative, make millions sometimes. Um, he's incredibly good at this. And so he plays, he games. And so he'll go to his house at night, he'll hang out. He has a whole community. Because see, on Xbox, they put on headphones, and they're actually talking to people all over the world and all over the United States. And so he has a whole community that knows him as the pastor of the group. And he shares the gospel with them. And a year ago, right before COVID, be a little over a year now, before COVID, all of them flew to, to Disneyland in, in California and met up. And he, he counsels them for all their marriages. He talks to them about parenting. And he had a chance to meet with them and spend like a week with them and share the gospel and just be together. And God is moving in powerful ways. Gaming is not a distraction. It's, it's our lack of understanding that every single thing in your life is about ministry and mission, Right? All of it. It's when we indulge in things as an end in and of themselves. That's the problem. But when we realize that all of life is ministry, everything you do this very day, we are on mission. We are sent out to bear witness to who God is in everything. Even in the meal that you're going to eat today, right? You figure out how that works. But it's true, right? Because Paul says in Romans that everything that is not done from faith is sin, right? So you can watch sports trusting in God and bearing witness to who he is, or you can watch it as just a thing in and of itself. You can do all kinds of things. You can ha your job can be a distraction if it's an end in and of itself. But to realize that your job is actually a means to an end, it's an opportunity that God has put in front of you to bear witness every day to people who don't know Jesus, that makes sense? So the things that we would name today that are distractions, it's not those things that are distractions. Our culture has lots of gadgets and bells and whistles to draw us away, but the reason we're drawn away is because we don't realize that all of these things are mission and ministry. God wants to use the very routines of your life 
to bear witness to who he is. I realized this too late. In the latter half of my kids' lives, I realized how valuable sports were. Some of the conversations at a basketball game or a football game or a baseball game, sitting in the stands with parents, some of those conversations are some of the most valuable gospel moments I've probably had in ministry. And yet how easily we go, man, this, this sports thing is so distracting. No, it's distracting if I don't realize the opportunities that God is placing, maybe sitting right in the stand beside me. And God does incredible things. And so Jesus is saying to them, don't get distracted. Don't, don't be careful about the things that keep you off focus. In other words, see every single thing as ministry. Don't be distracted by all the bells and whistles, all these things. Number five, he says, <clears throat> verse five, whatever house you enter, so they're supposed to go to a house. I don't know how that worked back in those days, knock on the door, <laughs> whatever. He says, whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. Peace to this house. Shalom. That's what they would have said. Shalom. Why would you do that? What is that about? I, I, was, I was wrestling with this in the commentaries and studying what other people say. It's testing the waters. I think we make evangelism maybe a little too hard. Jesus is saying, test the waters. Find out if, if a person's actually open to the gospel. Is there peace? Are they receptive? And if it's not, he says, it'll come back to you. <laughs> in other words, you're going to know. That's what he's going to say next. Like it, you're going to know, right? But if it is, if it is, then stay there. Like, is this a place that's welcoming and open to the gospel? These are not Christians here at this point. These are people you're entering. You're simply, you're simply throwing out a, a, a greeting to see, are they, are they open to this or not? Um, let, me, let me put this a different way for us. Um, I, for me, I've learned this a lot through the fire department and some of the roles that I get to play in the fire department. When you walk into somebody's home you've never met in your life, and they're in the midst of trauma, the world has literally feels like it's come to an end, and you walk in, the worst possible thing I could do, and this will sound strange maybe, the worst thing I could do is simply start praying for them or sharing the gospel with them. To make that assumption would be detrimental big time. Right? So it takes time and discernment to figure out where a person is at and if they are actually even open to that, right? And that's not just true in the midst of trauma. It's true in every relationship that you have. To discern at times where is a person at. Are they open at all? Is there some peace? Are, are they open to this conversation? And so for me, over the course of time, in the midst of a two to three hour period of time, I'm in this person's house. I'm looking for things. I'm looking, are there symbols on the wall that are religious? I'm looking for any opportunity to somehow find out where are they at. And, I'm, and at the end of it, if I don't know, and I'm still not sure, and I'm going to have to leave pretty soon, I will often say to them, I know that sometimes uh, we all have different ways that we cope with difficulties in our lives. We have different things that we do. Sometimes we drink a glass of wine. Sometimes we call our family and friends and we, we get all, all of our friends over here to help us out. Some people are religious and they pray. What are you? What about you? Is there a way that I can help you in this moment? And I'm amazed, completely irreligious people, how many times they will often, even though they're completely irreligious, they'll say, yeah, I think it'd be okay if you prayed. <laughs> I'd be like, I can do that. Right? You're trying to find out. But other times, you... You bring up a word like that, and they're like, boom, uh-uh. Like, literally, they might hurt you. And so you're like, okay, all right, that's where they're at. I have to trust God with that. You see, it's his harvest. He's the one at work. If a person's open, we share the gospel. We need to be careful that we don't assume that we have the right to just blurt out the gospel to anyone we think, right? Does that sound strange to us? But in one sense, that's what he's saying here. Jesus is saying, enter into the house and find out if this is a place of peace, if there's a man of peace. And if there's not, it's okay to leave. Right? You don't have to stay there. We don't force the gospel upon people. We test out the waters and see if people are actually open to it. We're not trying to bruise, I always call it, we're not trying to bruise the fruit. Right? 
I'm trying to beat the gospel into people that don't want to hear it. No. He says, he says we need to find the person of peace. Test the waters. Verse 6. He says, and if the son of peace is there, then your peace will rest upon him. But if it's not, if it's not, it will return to you. All right? It's okay. Test it out. Find out. It'll return. Verse 7. Are you guys with me so far? All right. Verse 7. He says, and remain in the same house. So this is the house of peace, obviously. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. So you go into a home. Now, you got to understand the, the hospitality rules of the, of the Middle East. Like, it's an ancient world. Like, the hospitality rules are very different than ours, right? In fact, you maybe even watch, like, Lone Survivor would give you a great... Uh, <laughs> there's a movie, Lone Survivor, of the U.S. soldiers, right? And, and this, this, uh, this community of Muslims actually protected this person who they would normally consider their enemy, but they, they have rules about if you invite somebody into your house, you're responsible for them to protect them at all costs, even with your life. We don't understand that here. Like, we don't have that kind of hospitality, right? I mean, you come to my house and somebody's going to kill you. I don't know. I might protect you. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we, don't, we don't live in that world, right? But, but he's saying to them, if you do find peace in this house, and they are open to the gospel, remain there and, and eat. In other words, put yourself in their debt. Eat whatever they give you, right? And, and he says, don't, don't move around from house to house. Verses 7, he said, be content. And that was a big thing back then, right? Because if, if, if this person's open to taking care of you, and then you go, yeah, but the neighbor down the street's got a jacuzzi. He's got a nicer place. The food's better, right? I think I'm going to go down there. You know, like that was a slap in the face in this culture. It would be the same for us, but we wouldn't be upfront about it, but, right? But it was a huge slap in the face to them. And so, and so he's saying, hey, if, if this house is open and they're willing to take care of you, then, then remain there. Don't be moving around from house to house. Be content. Stay in one place and just trust God. Let that be like the home base, right? Trust God with that. Um, number, number seven, verse nine. Well, let me read the rest of verse eight. It says, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. In other words, receive whatever they give you. Um, <laughs> when we were in Lithuania... We had, a, we had a birthday celebration, and they made this cake. It was the nastiest cake I've ever eaten in my life. Christy, she, she's, she's like, she's getting this taste in her, in her mouth right now. And, and I literally ate hers and mine so that it would look like she ate hers as well, right? I'm not kidding. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was amazing, wasn't it? No, I was kidding. No, yeah, no. I didn't think of it that way. That was good. Yeah, so. Anyway, but like... But it's, it's, it's nasty, right? I mean, it was terrible. I don't know what they put in. It looked like a jello cake. It was awful. I have no idea. But it's like a, it's like a delicate thing there, right? So to, to not graciously stomach this cake would have been so offensive. Our testimony and witness to the gospel over, right? And so I think, I don't know if that's what Paul means, but I, I wrestle with this going like, eat what's set before you. Don't be picky, don't be rude. Be gracious. Sometimes you have to choke something down you don't like, but be gracious, right? Be content. And, and your wife's, if you're a good man. No, I'm just kidding. Wow, this just went south in a hurry. So. Uh, verse 9, though, is interesting. Verse 9, he says, heal the sick and say to them. In other words, do good to people. Jesus had given them authority, in fact. He did that to the disciples back in chapter 9. He gave them authority over demons and to heal the sick. And he says, so it says, he says to them, heal the sick and proclaim to them, say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. Right? That's, a, that's a powerful thing. Now there's more to the message than that, right? We know that, like, because we see it throughout the gospel of, or the book of Acts. But he's saying, proclaim to people that this kingdom of light and, and this has this incredibly benevolent king that there's a new kingdom and it has come near to you. It is crashing into this dark world, to this dark kingdom, right? This was what they were to proclaim. The kingdom of God has come near to you. Take heed. Let me introduce you to his king, to this king. He's benevolent and gracious and loving and kind. And how do we introduce him to? We do benevolent and gracious and loving and kind things. Right? Literally, the way in which we bear witness to our good king is by actually doing good to people, 
So he's saying, be compassionate, do acts of mercy. These are the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. Do good works in the name of Jesus. This is what our, our, our guy that led our ministry in the reservation, he would be like, just go and do good works in the name of Jesus and trust him to open up doors. And he did. It was incredible. So put the kingdom of God on display, but also we need to announce the kingdom. Like, here it is. Here's what our king is like. In contrast to the kingdom of this world. But then we get to verse 8. Or to number 8. Verse 10. He says, but when you do enter a town. And they do not receive you. Now what? They do not receive you. He says, go into its streets and say. Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet. Will be wiped off against you. Most of the time we stop right there. We're like, we kind of have these moments in this passage. I feel like, and I've had this in the past, where it's like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, reject me and kick, you, kick me off your porch and won't talk to me, you know, reject the message, making fun of me, whatever. Like, yeah, take that. Wipe the dust off the feet. Man, it's going to be worse for you, he says at the end, than Sodom. It's going to be bad. Like, there is a serious thing, right? That's very serious. But, but it's, I don't think it's quite like that, is it? In fact, he says, nevertheless, it's not some big bravado thing or some, like, we're announcing judgment upon them ourselves necessarily, right? We're just simply saying, look, it's on you. (laughs) I shared the gospel with you. You rejected it. In fact, if you look down at verse 16, what does Jesus say? He says, the one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. My buddy uh, always used to tell me, he says, uh, it's not personal, Chris, it's just war. Meaning, meaning uh, it's, it's not about me. Right? Jesus is saying in verse 16 that if they reject the message, if, if, they, if they don't hear you, then they don't hear me. If they reject you, they're rejecting me, and if they reject me, they're rejecting the Father, right? It's about the message of the gospel. It's not personal. That may feel that way, right? I may take it that way. I'm not saying it's not hard, but he's saying the reality is, is that there are those who are going to reject it, but then he says, listen to what he says, though, but nevertheless, nevertheless, know this. So in other words, he says, hey, it's on you. You've rejected the message. We're wiping the dust off of our feet. That's, it's totally on you. But, but just, just one last time, we want you to know. He says, nevertheless, say, the kingdom of God has come near you. Like, there's still this hope, right? It's not this wiping off the feet, being done, we're never going anymore. Jesus is Lord of the harvest. He will take care of those details. However, we're always, he's just like, he's just throwing out one last thing. He's like, hey, just let them know. Just, just remind them one last time, the kingdom of God has come near I think it's an interesting wrestling for us. What does that look like for us? But I think, I'm not sure it is that hard for us. You know people who've rejected the message, maybe in your own family. I have that in mind. People who've rejected Christ. What do you do in those situations? Well, you pray your guts out. You pray for God to provide opportunities. You wait for the right moment, and if it never comes, that's not on you, right? But you've, you've, you've shared the gospel, and you, you have to trust God at that point, right? And, and you don't know if, they'll never, if it'll never happen. That's not on us. We don't know that, right? God knows. But, but we just have to trust God with it. There are times where, uh, in fact, Jesus said, don't throw the pearls, that is the, the preciousness of the gospel, to swine. Meaning, if someone is mocking the gospel and making fun of it, and every time you share it, they're just belittling it, Jesus is not saying, yeah, just keep giving it to them. No, he's saying, no, that's okay. To, it's okay, don't... Don't continue to press something that a person's not open to and they're continually mocking. No, you just have to walk away and pray for them and trust God. God's going to work. But it is a serious thing because he says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for them, for that town. It's a serious thing, right? In other words, there's things at stake in the harvest. It's a serious matter. So, I believe the, the, the last one I put up there is just results. I love this passage because if we were to go through the whole ch- ch- uh, chapter, 
we would find, what we got to stop, we would find here that the results are God's, right? Paul said this really clearly in Corinthians where he said, I water, or Apollos watered, or Apollos sowed, I watered, but God's the one who makes it grow. And he says, as neither I who sows or the one who waters is anything, only the Lord who makes it grow. The harvest, the actual reaping of the harvest and bringing it, it's God's deal, right? He is at work. We are called upon simply to be faithful to bear witness when he puts us in those opportunities. God will work. The results are his. And therefore, we should have tons of confidence, right? We have tons of confidence. This is his mission. And he's graciously allowed us to be a part of it. How are you today bearing witness to the reality of God? How are you doing that? Like, do you realize that when you walk away from here, that we have gathered today as the church, a gathered people. We are a people who gather all across this nation and all across the world. There is a gathered church constantly gathering. But the reason why we gather is to be sent. That we would be equipped and encouraged and built up and that we would be sent out from these places every single week into the harvest field that is ripe unto harvest. Pray for God to put you in close proximity to the people who need to know Jesus. To open up doors and opportunities that your eyes would be open. To discern, to discern, to take the opportunity to ask really good questions. To probe into people's lives. Say, what's that about? When they share some crazy off-the-wall thing that you're just like, you can't believe they believe that. Instead of freaking out, simply ask them questions. Say, that's interesting. That is amazing. I would like to know about that. Tell me more. See what God does. Open up the door. See, see if God will see if God will bring peace. See if there will be an opportunity for the gospel in those moments. But God has graciously sent us out uh, to bear witness. And so let's do that, church. Can we? This week, wouldn't it be fun if next week we just said, we're just going to come back and we're going to meet an hour before church and we're going to share what God did. Because they came back and they shared the stories, right? How often do we share the stories of what God's been doing? on your week, right? So they, they went out and they came back. They were rejoicing. They were, they were just like, couldn't believe it. Like they, if you read the rest of chapter 10, they're so excited. Like they're, they're telling Jesus, you won't believe what happened, which he would believe because he sent them out and he's Jesus, right? But they can't believe it. They're so excited. Wouldn't it be cool to come back and be like, you, you would not believe what God did. You wouldn't believe it to be able to share the ways in which God has used you and I this next week. So I challenge you to do that. Do that this week, and then next week share with somebody, all right? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for your love for us, your love for this world. God, I thank you that you have desired that we, that our lives would bear witness to the reality of your kingdom, to the reality of your presence in this place. And so, Lord, would you use us? Would you work in us and through us in a significant way? that you would be glorified, that people would see in us and through the message that we say, that we proclaim, the message of the kingdom, that people would know Jesus, that they would know your son, they would be transformed by him, that they would find their greatest joy and satisfaction in him alone. And so, Father, we pray and ask these things in your son's name. Amen.